UFOs, alien abductions, little green men, close encounters of the third kind, War of the Worlds, Star Wars, Star Trek. This is the stuff of science fiction, and it's all predicated on the premise intelligent beings exist in other worlds and they are out to get us. Ellen White's understanding of extraterrestrial beings, however, was quite different from this popular notion of a hostile universe. Welcome to the Ellen White Podcast. Here is your host, Dr. Judd Lake. In the last episode, I discussed Ellen White's understanding of extraterrestrials in the framework of her cosmic conflict worldview. In this episode, Ellen White and Extraterrestrials Part 2, I will continue with this theme and discuss her encounter with alien beings from another world. The examination of Ellen White's theological pluralism can be considered part of a new branch of theology identified as exotheology, also called astrotheology, but not in the sense New Agers use the term. Exotheology, the theological reflection on issues related to the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence, is a very up-and-coming academic discipline today. Issues such as sin in the universe, multiple incarnations, and alien conversion are topics of vigorous discussion among some theologians of today, and this literature is growing significantly. Now let me give you more on the historical context, somewhat of a continuation of the background from my last podcast on extraterrestrials part one. I'm going to use that word pluralism again, which you remember is the historical term that describes the belief that the universe is permeated with worlds circling their respective suns and that they are populated with sentient, intelligent beings. It is the term from which derives the 20th century concept of extraterrestrial life and has a long and rich history that began in ancient Greece and reached its zenith in the 19th century. In 1853, scientific philosopher and clergyman William Woole published his Of the Plurality of Worlds, an essay, and rocked the plurality world. He was concerned that plurality of inhabited worlds in the solar system would encourage the theory of evolution and diminish faith in God. Parts of the book were a response to Thomas Chalmers' theological pluralism. You remember we met Chalmers last time. Wool thus categorically rejected pluralism in favor of cosmic unity, the belief that human beings are the only intelligent beings in the universe and that the plan of salvation was focused on Earth alone. Wool's book created a major controversy that resulted in 20 books and over 50 journal publications, with most of them opposing his critique on plurality. This controversy continued until it was eclipsed by the vigorous discussion on Charles Darwin's 1859 On the Origin of Species, which advocated pluralism in the evolutionary context. One of the more notable negative responses to Wool came from Sir William Brewster, an accomplished Scotsman and good friend of Chalmers. In his book-length response to Wool, More Worlds Than One, The Creed of the Philosopher and the Hope for the Christian, Brewster contended for life on other worlds, including the planets in our solar system. He also advanced the extreme idea of life on the moon and the sun, claiming that the inhabitants of the latter 
are the highest orders of intelligence. Additionally, early Mormon cosmology included the belief that the sun was inhabited. You will find nothing of the sort in the writings of Ellen White. The most influential response to Wool, however, was Richard Anthony Proctor, who in 1870 published his Other Worlds Than Ours, Plurality of Worlds Studied Under the Light of Recent Scientific Research. Proctor was a British astronomer who became the most widely read author on the pluralist debate between 1870 and 1890. Other Worlds became immensely popular and went through 29 printings through the remainder of that century and into the next. The book was written against the backdrop of the Wool-Brewster debate and took a mediating position. Proctor supported Brewster on plurality of worlds, but rejected some of his extreme ideas about life on the moon and sun. He concluded that some of our solar system planets are not favorable to life, but that possibly Venus and even Uranus and Neptune could support life. By 1875, Proctor had moved away from the possibility of life on the planets in our solar system and beyond and took a Darwinian approach to pluralism that life is evolving on other planets. According to Tim Poyer, vice director of the Ellen G. White estate, the 1871 American edition of Proctor's Other Worlds was among the books C.C. Chrysler sold to Ellen White for her library in 1913. Because the book arrived in her library so late in her life, Poyer suggests she may not have ever consulted it. Now I want to touch on an issue that is certainly relevant, that of literary borrowing. Several of Ellen White's pluralist ideas are not original with her, which does raise the issue of literary borrowing, or some would say plagiarism. Pluralism and astronomical information were readily available in books, newspapers, and almanacs of the time. Did she read from any of this material? Did she read any of the major evangelical pluralist writings we mentioned last podcast, such as Thomas Chalmers, Timothy Dwight, or Thomas Dick, and incorporate their ideas into her pluralism? Although it is not my intention to, in this episode, to give a detailed analysis of this issue, my research has found that she read little, if any, from these authors. Even if she had read from them and used some of their ideas, her understanding of pluralism was unique to her. A good contemporary illustration is Joseph Smith, who has been accused of borrowing his pluralist ideas from Thomas Dick. Scholars Eric Robert Paul and Edward T. Jones, Mormon scholars, have demonstrated that Smith's thinking was so different from Dick that the two can hardly be compared. Smith's pluralist thinking had some similarities with other pluralists, but there are enough differences that his pluralism should be considered as unique to him. The same is true of Ellen White, even though she and Smith had very different pluralist and theological views. It should be noted that in the case of plurality of worlds, Ellen White was more in harmony with the Calvinist pluralist than with her theological mentor, John Wesley, who said of the, quote, supposition of plurality of worlds, that the more I consider that supposition, the more I doubt of it, end quote. In response to the challenge of innumerable worlds placed throughout immensity, by divine wisdom, Wesley responded, I have so high an opinion of the divine wisdom that I believe no child of man can fathom it. It is our wisdom to be very wary in how we pronounce concerning things which we have not seen. Ellen White followed Wesley in many ways theologically, but on this subject, she followed her visions. Now let's go to the 1849 vision in which she had an encounter with beings from another world. 
This was first published as a part of a broadside dated January 31, 1849. The Lord has given me a view of other worlds, Ellen White announced, and proceeded to describe her experience. Wings were given me, and an angel attended me from the city to a place that was bright and glorious. The grass of the place was living green, and the birds there warbled a sweet song. The inhabitants of the place were of all sizes. They were noble, majestic, and lovely. The description given here is reminiscent of the spiritualist mentioned in my last podcast, such as Emmanuel Swedenborg, Andrew Jackson Davis, and Thomas Lake Harris, who, based on their visions, described in detail the beautiful scenery, peaceful atmosphere, and fascinating beings on the planets they had visited. Davis, for example, reported that the beings on Saturn have bodies like us, with very high and long heads, and are social with strong convictions. The beings on Jupiter, he said, do not walk erect, but assume an inclined position, frequently using their hands and arms in walking, the lower extremities being rather shorter than the arms according to our standard of proportion. Harris met with Christian Platonic philosophers on the planet Mercury and noted that the beings from a star called Cassiopeia feed chiefly upon the aromas of exquisite flowers. Ellen White, however, as can be seen in the quote, gives no such details about this world and its inhabitants. Neither does she name the world. In this one and only encounter with beings from other worlds, in contrast to the three spiritualists who visited with a great variety of extraterrestrial beings in many visions, White is interested in the spiritual and theological perspective of these beings. Note her next words. They bore the express image of Jesus, and their countenance beamed with holy joy, expressive of the freedom and happiness of the place. I asked one of them why they were so much more lovely than those on the earth. The reply was, We have lived in strict obedience to the commandments of God, and have not fallen by disobedience like those on the earth. Then I saw two trees. One looked much like the tree of life in the city. The fruit of both looked beautiful, but of one they could not eat. They had power to eat of both, but were forbidden to eat of one. Then my attending angel said to me, None in this place have tasted of the forbidden tree, but if they should eat, they would fall. These holy beings are clearly untainted by sin and manifest the express image of Jesus, a reference from the King James Version of Hebrews 1.3 that describes Jesus as being the express image of his Father's person. Their appearance is different from that of the people on earth because they have obeyed the commandments of God and are thus not fallen. This world had two trees, and its inhabitants were commanded not to eat the fruit from one of them. The imagery here clearly recalls the Genesis 3 story of Adam and Eve's fall into sin and the resulting curse on the world. But these beings resisted the temptation and never partook of the forbidden fruit on their planet. Could the unfallen beings on this planet be representative of the other worlds throughout God's universe whose Adams and Eves did not eat of the forbidden fruit on their planet? Although this is a subject that White only hinted at, Adventists have pondered and discussed it over the years. Nevertheless, the vision apparently provided a theological foundation for White's pluralist understanding 
as she later referred to the other worlds throughout the universe as unfallen. This depiction gave White's readers a better understanding of God's unfallen universe and redemption on this planet. And this is revealed in a statement by James White a year later in the Advent Review. Describing the destruction of the devil and evil in the lake of fire, he wrote, Then God will have a clean universe, and there will be no more tempting devil to annoy the saints or holy beings on other worlds. Then the whole universe of God can join in one grand jubilee. Thus, this vision of unfallen beings on other worlds, primarily, primarily theological in nature, influenced the thinking of Adventists on pluralism and laid a foundation for White's future writings on the subject. In later years, she would build upon it for her theology of unfallen worlds. In the other part of the vision, White was taken to a world which had, as she said, seven moons, and encountered good old Enoch, who had been translated. The rest of the depiction shows Enoch with his vestures of victory, purity, holiness, and a crown that shone brighter than the sun enjoying his visit to this planet during his time away from the heavenly city. The lesson of the entire account was to encourage Ellen that, if faithful, she, like Enoch from the earth, will with the 144,000 enjoy the privilege of visiting all the worlds and viewing the handiwork of God. This vision, though never referred to specifically again in White's writings, was continuously present as a foundation for her later statements about other worlds. The theological ideas expressed in her conversation with an inhabitant from this world remain consistent in her pluralism for the rest of her life. Now let's look at the larger context of Ellen White's vision of inhabitants from another world. Richard A. Proctor's book, Other Worlds Than Ours, provided a balance to the extravagant claims of religious writers on pluralism such as Thomas Dick, who went so far as to calculate the number of intelligent inhabitants on each planet in our solar system. He concluded that Jupiter contained almost 6 billion inhabitants and Saturn about 5 billion inhabitants, and even calculated the number of people in Saturn's inner and outer rings. Proctor advocated the plurality of inhabited worlds, but argued conversely about Jupiter. We must, of course, he argued, dismiss the idea that the giant planet is at present a fit abode for living creatures. The same was said about the inhabitability of Saturn. He did theorize that Venus is the most likely planet in our solar system to sustain intelligent life like ours. Proctor was thus moving in the direction of what later scientists concluded, that the planets in our solar system are not fit for intelligent life. In fact, by the end of the 19th century, and early into the 20th century, argues Crow, the idea of intelligent life on our solar system planets was all but abandoned. Ellen White has been charged with saying in vision that she saw tall, majestic beings on Saturn and Jupiter. The White estate correctly responded to this charge. Contrary to some reports, Ellen White did not identify by name any of the worlds that she was shown in vision. Joseph Bates, a retired sea captain with special interest in astronomy, was present during at least one of these visions, and he is reported to have identified the planets Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus as being among those described. Some have mistakenly linked Elder Bates' remarks to Ellen White's description of a place inhabited by noble and majestic beings, 
In Ellen White's own account of her vision, however, she says only that she was taken to a place that was bright and glorious. She does not identify the place as Jupiter, Saturn, or any other planet in our solar system. Nevertheless, some Adventists during that time apparently believed that Ellen White saw beings on whatever solar system planets in vision, due apparently to the influence of writers like Thomas Dick, who, as noted earlier, popularized the idea in our solar system. And I should add, I have found that there is evidence that some of our pioneers read the writings of Thomas Dick. So it was a common and popular belief that life existed in our local planets in the solar system. Proctor also explained in his book that, besides our sun, there are myriads of other suns in the immensity of space, that these suns are large and massive bodies capable of swaying by their attraction systems of worlds as important as those which circle around the sun, that these suns are formed of elements similar to those which constitute our own sun, so that the worlds which circle around them may be regarded as in all probability similar in constitution to this earth, and that from those suns all the forms of force which we know to be necessary to the existence of organized beings on our earth are abundantly emitted. It is interesting how far their thinking was in terms of the solar systems in space. He further reasoned from the principle of plenitude that none of these suns with their light and heat are wasted, and concluded, though here we cannot, as in the case of the solar system, actually see the worlds about which we speculate, yet the mind presents them clearly before us, various in size, various in structure, infinitely various in their physical condition and habitudes, but alike in this that each is peopled by creatures perfectly adapted to the circumstances surrounding them, and that each exhibits in the clearest and most striking manner the wisdom and beneficence of the Almighty. It is noteworthy that although Ellen White most likely never read from Proctor, in the years after her 1849 vision of conversing with beings from another world, she broadened her pluralist language. In 1881, for example, she spoke of unnumbered worlds throughout immensity. In 1888, the unnumbered worlds throughout the vast realms of space. By 1858, she was using the term entire universe and frequently employed whole universe throughout the 1880s and 1890s. In using these terms, she was attempting to convey God's universe as vast and immensely populated with intelligent, sentient beings that are loyal to God and greatly interested in what is happening on our little planet. Thus, whether she was intentional in doing so or not, this language drew reader attention away from our solar system to the numberless worlds that God controls throughout the universe. It is possible, although there is no evidence that I'm aware of, that C.C. Chrysler may have shared with Ellen White what he had read in Proctor's book. If so, then this would have made her aware of the problem of life on our solar system planets, as well as provide scientific support for her view of the heavenly universe teeming with intelligent life. And I should add this issue of her vision with Joseph Bates and the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and so forth, that has drawn a lot of attention. Critics have addressed that vision as well. And that is an astronomical vision that needs more attention. 
that I will give in a future podcast. But for now, I want to stay focused on the subject at hand. Over the next 30 plus years, 1881 to 1913, White's comments about the unfallen worlds were spread throughout her periodical articles, books, and manuscripts in addition to the Conflict of the Ages series. Now I want to discuss two themes in Ellen White's pluralism. First, sin restricted to our world alone. Ellen White remained consistent in all later comments after her 1849 depiction that the earth is the only planet in the universe that has disobeyed God and is under the curse of sin. This world is, quote, in open rebellion against God, the very field that Satan claims is his, and the one dark blot in his glorious creation. It is a vast laser house, a scene of misery that we dare not allow even our thoughts to dwell upon. This is just a a host of, of statements by Ellen White put together here. The world that God had made was blighted with the curse of sin and inhabited by beings doomed to misery and death. Unequivocally, she declared, there is but one world that is apostatized, but one flock of lost sheep, the inhabitants of other worlds, are loyal and true to God. Her pluralism was consistent in repeatedly referring to all the other worlds in the universe as unfallen and sinless. Now, very interestingly, Andrew Leach, a Christian pluralist writer of the day, set forth the concept of a sinless universe. He did so in eloquent, picturesque prose. He wrote, The universe is a great harp, and each orb a string in that harp. But one string, at least, is untuned. Sin has broken that string, and now there is a jarring in the notes that ascend to the throne of the eternal. One great end of redemption is to readjust this jarring string of our world. The whole universe, in some measure, felt the fall of man. Just as one discordant string tells upon the harmony of all the strings of a musical instrument, and the whole universe will feel the effects of redemption when this world is once more put in tune by the hand of love and mercy. Quite a beautiful statement and very much in harmony with Ellen White's basic understanding. The second theme is the value of this little world in the vast cosmos. As I mentioned in my last podcast, during the early decades of the 19th century, Christian writers responded to Thomas Paine's argument in the age of reason, that Christianity and plurality of worlds are incompatible, and that God has better things to do in administrating the universe than to quit everything and to come and die for this planet's sins. Paine's jab that it is a solitary and strange conceit for Christians to believe that God should quit the care of all the rest and come to die for our world drew an especially strong response from Thomas Chalmers, who stated, Is it likely, says the infidel, that God would send His eternal Son to die for the puny occupiers of so insignificant a province in the mighty field of His creation? And Chalmers' answer, which occurs in various forms throughout the entire sermon series, is basically summarized in this statement. The God who sitteth above and presides in high authority over all worlds is mindful of man. And though at this moment His energy is felt in the remotest providences of creation, we may well feel the same security in His providence as if we were the objects of His undivided care. Although there is no evidence that Ellen White read Chalmers, as I noted earlier, 
She certainly agreed with his line of reasoning and stated her case in even stronger language. She wrote, In the speck of a world, the whole heavenly universe manifests the greatest interest. For Christ has paid an infinite price for the souls of its inhabitants. But in this speck of a world, she said, in the souls that he gave his only begotten son to save, that his interest and the interest of all heaven is centered. Thus, for white, this world is the center of God's redemptive activity in the universe, and human beings are the object of his great love and compassion. She put it most eloquently when commenting on the parable of the lost sheep. This world is but an atom in the vast dominions over which God presides. Yet this little fallen world, the one lost sheep, is more precious in his sight than are the ninety and nine that went not astray from the fold. For this he left the sinless worlds on high, the ninety and nine that loved him and came to this earth. It's statements like that that I read as a young man that move me. And helped me understand as I grew up, especially as a teenager, one of my great uh, questions was, is there life out in the universe? And if so, what is it like? Uh, Has Christ died for those beings on other planets? And these type of questions were in my head many, many times. I remember reading books like uh, Eric Von Daken's Chariots of the Gods and Atlantis Rising and a lot of that type of literature and and uh, science fictions. I have to admit, I grew up as a Trekkie. I watched Star Trek, reruns of Star Trek, and I always wondered about life in the universe. And it's when I came to know Christ and read Ellen White and statements like this that it became clear to me and it answered, at that point, a lifelong question for me. And uh, that's why this subject matter is, is very personal to me. As to Thomas Paine's charges against Christianity, Ellen White responded in a different context than that which the evangelical pluralists did. Whereas they were responding to Paine's use of pluralism against Christianity, she was responding to the use of Paine's voice through spiritualism. In 1852, spiritualist medium Reverend Charles Hammond published The Pilgrimage of Thomas Paine and Others to the Seventh Circle in the Spirit World in which the ascended spirit of pain delivered a message to earth that his name was written in the record of eternal life, that his wrongs were remedied, and these are quotes from the book, that he had received a new baptism and existed in the seventh sphere and could now instruct others in this new and enlightened existence. Now, Ellen White had no use for spiritualism, and this book drew a strong response from her two years later in a supplement to the first edition of her book, Experience and Views, in which she explained the danger of spiritualism and declared, Thomas Paine, whose body has now moldered to dust and who is to be called forth at the end of the 1,000 years at the second resurrection to receive his reward and suffer the second death, is represented by Satan as being in heaven and highly exalted there. Just as Satan used him on earth, so he is using him now. As he taught here, Satan would make it appear that he is teaching in heaven. Thus, the reason for which White responded to Paine was different from the reason from the evangelical pluralist, although one can't help but wonder if encountering the age of reason was also in the back of her mind when she wrote 
of God's great love in Christ for this one lost planet in the vast universe. At any rate, Ellen White's plurality took on a didactic purpose to illustrate the great love of God in coming to the speck of a world to die for its inhabitants who have sinned. As an evangelical herself, she certainly agreed with Chalmers and the others on the great love of God for this small planet in the universe. But distinct from these other pluralists, she understood it in the framework of the great controversy over the character of God. Quote, by giving heaven's richest treasure, his only begotten son, to die for man, God would demonstrate before all created intelligences how much he loves the fallen race. End quote. The redemptive drama on this one tiny planet is thus the focal point of the entire universe. On this theme, I think Ellen White's most beautiful and moving pluralist statement is this. The work of redemption will be complete. In the place where sin abounded, God's grace much more abounds. The earth itself, the very field that Satan claims is his, is to be not only ransomed, but exalted. Our little world, under the curse of sin, the one dark blot in his glorious creation, will be honored above all other worlds in the universe of God. Here, where the Son of God tabernacled in humanity, where the King of glory lived and suffered and died. Here, when he shall make all things new, the tabernacle of God shall be with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And through endless ages, as the redeemed walk in the light of the Lord, they will praise him for his unspeakable gift, Emmanuel, God with us. That's from Desire of Ages, page 26. In conclusion, at the end of her book, The Great Controversy, the grand conclusion to the Conflict of the Ages series, Ellen White described in moving language how the redeemed will visit other worlds. Worlds, she said, that thrilled with sorrow at the spectacle of human woe, that rang with songs of gladness at the tidings of a ransomed soul. With the plan of redemption complete, the children of earth, she said, enter into the joy and the wisdom of unfallen beings and share the treasures of knowledge and understanding gained through ages upon ages in contemplation of God's handiwork. With this, she came full circle from her 1849 visionary encounter with another world some 60 years earlier, when she was promised that, if faithful, she would one day have the joy of visiting other worlds in the universe of God. For Ellen White, then, pluralism was indeed a promise of joy and discovery throughout all eternity. And so it will be for you and me as we believe in Jesus. Next month's episode, I'm going to take us back to the basics, Ellen White and the Bible. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, always test a prophet by the prophets of the Bible. Bible.